This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Craig LaHuller, who is the author of Epic Tomatoes and a book on strawberry gardening. But i got to say, Craig just told me this wonderful news. That Craig, you are the winner of the Gold Award for the best book from the Garden Writers Association. And that's just fantastic. Congratulations, Craig. Well, you can continue to knock me over with a feather, Daryl. Um, this, this came in on a Facebook post that was shared by my friend Bree down at the conference uh, last night. And uh, um, unexpected, uh, I'm not one to, well, the, the book's been out a year and a half, and I've never been aware of is it up for awards, does it get submitted, how does it get submitted, because that's never been something that's been of particular interest to me. Um, you know, I write in a garden to share what I learn and to just get joy out of it. So this, it's it's more than frosting in the cake, and I'm I'm really pretty humbled by it. Um, you know, the team effort of the people at Story who worked on it, Carly Bader and Stephen and Kip and Marcy, the photographers, and Carol and the designer, and uh, we all. It's it's a tip of the cap to everyone who made the book beautiful and uh, and really all all the people that seem to be enjoying it. So. That, that's all I'll say about it, except uh, just a lot of gratitude coming from me for being recognized for doing a hobby I love and just getting a chance to write my story. Well, and but your book is touching people, too. Um, I, I think that obviously other people think, like I do, that this is an absolutely amazing book. This is my favorite book of the decade. And maybe longer than that. Um, and every time I dip into it, I find something else that I hadn't seen before. Like I just came across your color-coded salsa fresco recipe this morning <laughs> when I was flipping through. And I, I just said, what a marvelous idea to have your salsa so you don't. You know, somebody doesn't think, oh, good, a nice mild red salsa, <laughs> and and get their socks blown off by it, by something really hot. Um, and so by using different color tomatoes and different levels of pepper, um, you, you make it something safe for people. <laughs> but yeah, there's always we, something in here. Yeah, we, I, you know, I, when, we, when, we, when I came up with that, I thought of... Uh, stoplights you know green is go yellow is caution and red is red and i thought wow isn't this cool we got all these colored tomatoes you can actually bring some salsa to a party that that pre-warn people so that uh they don't get hurt and uh you know we went to a party a few years ago and first tried that out and people got kind of got a kick out of it so and you know you can make that red one you can just load it up with all of the hot habs you can uh and make it almost melt the bowl if you want. But you you really got to keep that green one mild or else you could lose all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when you start with your mild salsa, your mild green mm. salsa, you've got one green jalapeno or serrano. Yep. I wouldn't yep. go near a serrano, but some people like them. And then for your red salsa, you've got two red Thai chilies. <laughs> yep. Plus yep. the red plus the red habanero. And I yep. can't 
imagine, I mean, Thai chilies to me is just way <laughs> over the top. But some people like that stuff. But I think it's a wonderful idea. And I'm just always finding stuff in here. Yeah. And I keep learning. And and that's the, the neatest thing is that I do keep learning in the book. And I've been growing heirloom tomatoes since before they were cool. And I've been gardening for more than 60 years. So it, to see something like that and read something in the book that I didn't know, that's amazing. And you keep learning too, don't you? Yeah, you, ju- you just said something really, really relevant there. So each of us have had a substantial journey through gardening. Um, <clears throat> anybody who gardens for decades is not only growing vegetables and having successes and failures, but continually learning. And so by definition, a book is a point in time that is written at a moment, and that moment captures the learning to date. And it's not only my learning, but lots of research goes into a book like that. So you're actually looking at the best of everything. What, what's the most up-to-date thoughts on late blight? What's the most up-to-date thoughts on, on feeding, et cetera, et cetera? So a book, but then a book is written and it stands still, but learning doesn't stand still. And so already the last two gardening seasons, I'm learning more, I'm growing more. But isn't that what makes this a hobby that lasts for a lifetime is that you, you I don't think we seek things where we say we've got that nailed. Uh, you know, you, you think of a guitar player who never rests on his laurels and says, well, this is as good as I'm going to be. That's it. They try to get better. Gardeners try to get better. Tomato enthusiasts try to find more tomatoes to grow. Pepperheads try to find hotter and hotter chilies to grow. And, uh, it, to me, it makes gardening maybe the most wonderful of all hobbies because it's it's endless and it's infinite moving forward. I think you're right about that because there, you know, it's, what was it that, what was the Thomas Jefferson quote, though I am an old man, I am but a new gardener? Yes, yes, yes. And that, because you're always constantly learning something and renewing yourself and your garden so tell me what you learned this year you've been all over the place and i'm amazed that you had a chance to get into your garden at all it was tricky and uh excuse me the ragweed is um providing a little Mm -hmm. bit of challenge to both of us here um so the choreography of an ambitious garden and an ambitious speaking tour and blogging and uh, family and family trips and it, it's been fascinating and so you learn a few things um, the biggest one the hammer that comes down is it's kind of the best laid plans amongst mice and men you can do what you think is fantastic upfront planning your plant spaced appropriately the number is just right um, being around for the watering regimen and then all of a sudden you're blessed, quote-unquote, with endless heat, high humidity, and torrential downpours late in the day, late in the day so Mm -hmm. that you have wet foliage going into the hot, humid nights. And so Mm -hmm. this was my year of a substantial amount of early blight, septoria leaf spot. Um, Now, there's kind of a funny story associated with this. uh, Joe Lample, Growing a Greener World, um, was at my house a few times to film an episode that 
he's doing on uh, Brie Arthur and myself on Tomatoes that I think is going to run next year. And uh, so I'm, I'm, there was the added pressure of having a garden. Well, what do you call it? Practicing what you preach. Here's Craig. He supposedly knows something about tomatoes. He's written this book about tomatoes. You know, the garden's got to look pretty good. It's got to reflect those things that I talk about in the book. So he came a few times. The garden looked good. The second time he came to do the last of his substantial filming was the last day that the garden really looked great. And the very next day, the early blight and the septoria started blooming. And I was out there with my scissors cutting away foliage out the wazoo, making my poor plants look like kind of sick topiaries with, with this arm <laughs> foliage. And, and so when people see this episode, maybe this is a spoiler, I don't know, it's going to make me look like a much better gardener than I actually am. <laughs> 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 but, but it's not skill so much. It, so it's luck. It, it's the serendipity of weather and when weather happens and the type of weather that happens in sometimes your ability to react to it, but sometimes there's nothing you can really do. It's, and, and one of the things that people have been doing actually in North Carolina, some of the successful CSAs and such, is they're growing tomatoes um, under cover that keeps the yep. rain off the leaves, but it's high enough and there's enough light coming through, and they're starting to achieve some really good success with a reduction in the fungal foliage diseases. And so they're getting more yield out of their plants and they're getting a longer growing season. So uh, there's a couple of learnings right there, isn't there? The, the fact that you can do lots of good things and all of that rain is, is going to take an effect on your plants, especially in our climate. But the fact that there are some things to do that may not be cheap or easy um, with using like uh, high level coverings where you're letting air through, keeping the water off the plants. So, that's just a few of the things that, that I learned um, and experienced. Uh, uh, my and, and yield, my, go ahead, sorry. That's one of the really important things for especially new gardeners to learn. It, yes. You may not be doing anything wrong. It may right. be just the weather is bad or um, you, maybe your variety wasn't quite right for the climate or the climate was so much different this year than it was last year that, you know, you can't really make a comparison. And a lot of people blame themselves. Yes. And yes. when it's not any of their fault, if they're doing things reasonably well, and I know yeah. the ex a lot of experts will say, you've got to do it this way or you've got to do it that way. But really, there's a lot of variation in what yeah. you can do and have successful plants. And, and I think that's really important for people to know, that you can do everything right. You can be an expert. And yep. still, your plants are, are not going to perform like you wanted them to. Right. Um, so I spoke fairly recently in Boston, in Hot Springs, Virginia, up at Monticello, and what I'm starting to do when I'm speaking toward it at the end of the summer is I'm asking my audience, who's had a good tomato year? And I'm looking at hands. And I can tell you that down the East Coast from Boston to North Carolina, very few hands went up when I said who's having a good tomato year. So the weather, the, uh, weather patterns have really uh, impacted people. Now, what really lifts the heart, and this, this happened at one of my talks at Monticello, I had an audience of about 50 or so. One person raised their hand and said they had their best tomato year ever. And now, you can look at that two ways, glass half empty, glass half full. Wow, it was a tough year of tomatoes. But 
one person had a great year, meaning the microclimate at their house, the particular varieties they grew, the soil they planted it in, how they tended them that year. It worked for them. And doesn't it just reinforce the fact that there are no guarantees? And if you do have a really tough year, the odds are you will have a better year the next year, especially if you incorporate some of the things that you learned during that year, if you can tie some of the results to cause and effects. There are some things you could probably modify or do differently the next year to give yourself a better experience. That is for sure. Uh, I watch the sun patterns in my garden have changed so much over the years that what I used to do is no longer successful. Uh Even with my container garden and my driveway garden, um, what I have done in previous years the spacing that I used I can't use now because too much shade has come and and the difference even between midsummer and now is astonishing the plants that were doing great in the front row and that were in sun earlier this year are not in sun anymore they're not getting any sun except what comes through the trees so I'm a big believer in observing and keeping a journal and it it doesn't have to be a written journal if you don't want to i like to write notes because i forget um and you use your uh i guess you use a little recording device so that you have it but and and do you not do you mark how much rain you've had um on your calendar i like to do that too i would like to do it more yeah excellent excellent that and the temperatures um, yeah. If you have those down, they give you a really good starting place. And I can't believe that our 13 and a half minutes is up already. So we have to take a little break, and we'll be right back after this. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm here with Craig LaHuyer, author of Epic Tomatoes, and, and we're talking tomatoes and what he learned this year. And right before the break, we were talking about how much weather um, affects what you're doing. What else have you found that made a big difference? So um, two, maybe one corollary to the weather is temperature, especially high temperature playing around with days to maturity and yield and actually what happens to your your yield envelope in a season like this where typically you grow i had 170 tomato varieties of tomatoes grown spanning from a typical 30 to 40 day ripener in mexico midget all the way up to a, an 85 90 day ripener in lillian's yellow heirloom pretty much everything came and went within a three-week stretch of July. So the days of maturity information 
were blown out the window with the series of 85, 90, 95, 100 degree days with heat indexes in the 110, they're growing on concrete in black grow bags. That gave them an additional boost of uh, speed to reach maturity. The tomatoes were delicious, but they came and went very quickly. And the, um, the rain and the humidity that led to disease meant for a relatively early plant demise. So essentially, I pulled all of my plants out the first week of August, and I've got a garden growing out there. We will kind of come on to that in a moment. But one other thing I learned that I think is kind of fascinating is that um, we often get to the end of it, to the middle or to the end of a season where we've got most of our harvest in, and we, we assess the season with a blanket statement. I didn't can a single quart of tomatoes. So I could say this was not a successful garden. I didn't get enough tomatoes. Now, when I think back to how I planned this garden, I planted my tall, growing, otherwise known as indeterminate tomatoes in five-gallon grow bags with only two gallons of soil in it because the goal, this is an R&D garden, I just wanted to get one or two clusters of fruit off of a plant so I could photograph it, taste it, save seed from it, and assess it. So you can't design an R&D garden where you're only aiming, your, your goal is a ripe fruit and a plant accomplished and then at the end of the year saying I didn't get enough tomatoes my garden failed my garden actually brilliantly succeeded to deliver the result that I planned for it's just that when you get to where you're missing the tomatoes you forget what you planned for and you, you're you're wishing that you planted for yield but you didn't you can't you can't have it both ways so you know your upfront planning is going to dictate what you'll realize you can't change the goalposts at the end of the year and say, this didn't work out because you may go back to your original objective, but my God, it did work out. It's just that I didn't plan it for having 50 quarts of tomatoes in my closet. So, um, and, and that's kind of that link Daryl, between good planning. The last blog post I posted yesterday, and this was, it was a blog post based on a new talk that I did for Monticello where I, I call it five must do's for tomato success. And I blogged it, and I have a link on my Facebook page, and it's on my blog where I, <clears throat> I cover, you know, I thought about the whole tomato experience from beginning to end, and I thought, what, are, what would five things be where if all gardeners did them, it would help to nudge them more towards success? With that caveat, we said you can never guarantee success or gardening. So I'll be interested to seeing how people, the audience seemed to like the talk. It gave them a new way to think about things. For many gardeners, it will be, this isn't new at all. This is what I do, and that's fantastic. But, um, you know, people want to look at my Facebook author page or look at my website and blog, they'll see a way that I took people through the process of this, and I've incorporated in that blog a lot of the things that I learned this year. So just wanted to share that. And I will, that. of course, post a link to your, pa- your uh, web page on uh-huh. America's Homegrown Veggie Show page, Facebook page, so people don't have to worry um, that they might not miss that they might miss it. Um, but, you know, you answered a question now that I've had all summer. Like, how come you used a five-gallon bag with so yep. little soil in it? You know, and I was thinking to myself all summer long, well, he can't be getting much fruit off of that. No, five, to ten, five, five to seven pounds of plant, maybe ten, with a lot of watering and a lot of feeding, of course, because to sustain the plant healthily in that amount of soil, and a lot of pruning because you can't let 
you can only let a couple of growing stems form. You can't let it go wild. It, you know, there's just not enough that the roots are in to sustain a plant of, of humongous size. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because I use very, very large pots, uh-huh. and I tend to let multiple stems go in uh-huh. for most plants. Some of them I can't because I don't have enough air circulation in some parts of the garden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, this year, after the, the weeks, of, you know, we had something like 87 days or 89 days over 90 degrees this year. Wow. That's and fun. it was... You know, the yields, of course, were down because anything that hadn't yes. set some fruit before, it heated up, and it heated up really quickly. Um, anything that hadn't set fruit basically didn't for the rest of the summer, yes. um, with with the exception of some of the cherry tomatoes. Do you also find yep. that cherries will generally produce in higher temperatures than some of the older ones? And larger ones. Yeah, actually, the ability of a tomato to set fruit at particular temperatures, on, on one level, it's related to the specific variety and what its preference is in terms of temperature and humidity ranges. But as a general rule of thumb, the larger the tomato, the more it will struggle with setting fruit under very high um, heat and very humid conditions. And a lot of the people who are growing seedlings that they get from me or even just send, sending me emails. You know, one of the best things about the book is the number of tomato friends I have now all over the country. And so a lot of my evenings are spent answering the emails I get during the day with pictures of foliage or pictures of plants, and I get to play tomato doctor. And I love that. And, and I always put the caveat in, it's very tough to do visual diagnosis I, you know mm-hmm. and I'll always send people a link to a good site like the Cornell disease identification site and suggest people go to their extension agent but it's fun to take a whack at it it's kind of like a form of uh, Sudoku or, or a crossword puzzle <laughs> to help people sort these things out but yeah so many many people I've got lush plants I've got tall plants I've only picked one tomato or it's never even set fruit and I'll ask them have you seen flowers well yeah we've seen the flowers and I'll say, yep, the the temperature in your area is not suitable for that pollen to actually find its way into the style and the pistil and pollinate. And, you know, I'll suggest people gently go and just flick or tap their blossoms a few times a day. But a lot of times what you have to do is just wait until the temperatures cool down, and then subsequent blossoms will set fruit. But there are many, many people that have a big fruit gap in their tomato crop this year. Maybe two feet of their plants were not a single tomato set or more because of the mm-hmm. – so you, what you observed is exactly – unfortunately, it's exactly expected for a large fruit variety. So. That's what I have come to realize over the years. I just wanted to make sure that your your estimation was about the same as mine, your experience, because I know you have also gardened in – different parts of the country as I have. And the stuff that grew for me well in New Jersey does not grow generally well for for me down here. There are some things that... It does, yep. but even the ones that do produce, like Rutgers. Rutgers was one of the, my go-tos um, up in New Jersey. And when I come down here, if we have a really hot spell, the shoulders stay green. They never yes. completely yep. ripen. That's exactly right. And I think back to when we gardened in suburban Philadelphia. We lived in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, and we worked a lot of mushroom soil into the garden. And, you know, it's, 
I'm so envious of that garden because I could take my hand and pound it into the soil and go up to my shoulder and not find a rock. And <laughs> That's when I fell in love with heirlooms, and I thought, there's nothing to this. I would plant any of 100 heirlooms. I'd get 30, 40 pounds of plant, rarely see any disease. And then I moved to North Carolina, <clears throat> and I dug a garden and started making flower pots and bricks. And... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, when you plant all these plants, and Aunt Russian, which, which really shone up in Pennsylvania because it's a Russian variety that's adapted to cooler weather, tends to struggle a little bit down here. But you get some of the opposite effect, where Cherokee Purple, which originated in Sevierville, Tennessee, so right around the latitude of Raleigh, when I first grew it up in Pennsylvania, it was a very good tomato. And it was a unique tomato, of course. It, no tomato of that color had ever been seen. When it's grown here in Raleigh, which is essentially its, its latitude home, it absolutely shines. So every now and then you mm-hmm. get the opposite effect, where a variety that may not have done as well up north will find its home here. And it's really trial, error, or emailing a tomato-obsessed nut like me so I can you know, help guide people through based on, <laughs> based on the two or 3,000 that I've grown here or there. I can maybe point people in the right direction um, but it's one of the reasons I tell people if they can and if they're adventurous and if they've got the room, grow a variety of tomatoes in their garden and then see what does well and what doesn't do, do well. Maybe give a variety two years, not just one, because, you know, it, it could just be the weather was particularly bad that year. But then, you know, there's so many tomatoes, Daryl, and so many excellent tomatoes. I've taken kind of the two strikes and they're out route for ones that find a permanent place in my garden. Um, Life's too short to bang your head against the wall to try to get a tomato to to perform if there's many, many analogs out there that will do better. Yeah, I I very definitely agree. (laughs) I usually give my plants three years um, Uh unless I have kept records, you know, my my temperature and rainfall records that tell me, you know, what kind of things we faced. Like for a while we had, you know, back in the 90s, we had an extended period of drought. And then we just got dumped on and dumped on and dumped on. It rained and rained and rained. And then we went into another period that, again, was very dry. And this summer we got hot and dry early, and we went for weeks without any rainfall. And things were just burning up. And, of course, you mm-hmm. add that to the reflected heat from the driveway, and yep. that made a really big difference. And then we had a week of cool, rainy weather. So, yes. you know, we went from hot and dry, and I was thinking, oh, great, I'm going to have a wonderful year of tomatoes because I wasn't seeing any foliar disease. And then, boom. Yep. Yeah. And, of course, once but, your tomatoes really start uh, to go downhill, you don't have much wiggle room anymore. Uh, no. And it, you know, it, if and they in fact, produce that's, fruit that's spotty or yeah. whether, you know, the stink bugs are carrying anthracnose around, oh, that's yes. another whole thing in yeah. the garden this year. We saw oh. a, lot of cracking, a lot of cracking and anthracnose late. Now, interestingly, here's an observation, no hornworms, very few fruit worms, no stink bugs, and very few aphids. So I almost wonder if even the insects thought this heat was ridiculous, and they said, we're, we're moving north. We can't. We're, this is too hot for even us. But I had an almost virtually pest-free garden, and I don't spray a thing, which I found curious. So clearly the weather is impacting travel patterns and populations of insects. I just don't know. I've not done the research or, or the querying around or the Googling to know what any of this means yet. Um, but it is kind of curious. Now, 
so this was kind of a project I did that was another interesting learning is that um, hold that thought I, yeah, Craig we've yes, got to take another break time, and we'll be right time. back <laughs> yes, we'll be right back after quick stakes that's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking today with Craig LaHuyer, author of Epic Tomatoes, and a nice little book on straw bale gardening. And we're, right before the break, we were talking about what we learned this year. And one of the other thing, what, what other things have you learned this year? Um, so there, there's two more I want to touch on, but the first of which is garden every year is a collection of many little projects. And, you know, I have my a few different things in the dwarf project that are going on. We've got them growing in straw bales. But one thing I've been dying to do, and I finally got to it, is I've been noticing through the years as I've gone to farmer's markets that some of some of the varieties that I've either created or named, like Cherokee Purple or Cherokee Chocolate or Cherokee Green, Lucky Cross, I, I see variation. And, I, you know, I, I have some friends I know who grow these and bring them to market. They've given me some of their fruit. They don't have the same internal structure. They don't have the same flavor. So I've been curious as to do I really know what these varieties were like when I first discovered or named them. So I actually got some 13 to 16-year-old Cherokee purple uh, and Cherokee chocolate and green from right when I discovered them. Uh, I mean, getting 16-year-old seed to Germany is really exciting for one thing. But the fact that it was only one generation removed from when Mr. Green sent it to me as an unnamed variety meant I had a really good chance of seeing what this thing is supposed to be, what originally was, what its intended appearance and flavor is. I was very successful with this. And uh, I, it did Cherokee Purple, Chocolate, and Green. Were, all three of them were stars of my garden. But the flavor was there. The internal structure was what I remember. And they are definitely different, and I would say better in eating quality, if not size and cracking, 
to what is showing up at some of the farmers' markets. So what's happening is inadvertently or maybe people not understanding genetics, they'll maybe grow 200 plants of variety X, and their, their customers are always looking for something maybe a little earlier or a little bit bigger, and they'll look at a plant and it looks different, and they'll say, oh, this is the plant I'm going to save my Cherokee purple from this year. Well, it's likely that the bees have gotten into that plant. It might be a cross with something else. But then that becomes then the foundation for their stock going forward. And they may not realize it, but they're not really selling Cherokee Purple anymore. They're selling Farmer Jones's favored selection of Cherokee Purple, which may indeed be Cherokee Purple crossed with Variety X. But that's, that is getting out there. And if people are saving seeds from that, those are then getting shared. Now, I'm using Cherokee Purple for an example, but this could happen with any heirloom. And so first, the good news is the number of people involved in seed saving, seed sharing, the interest in heirlooms is skyrocketed. It's huge. It's wonderful. But in some cases, the discipline of keeping a variety true, of understanding that tomatoes can cross, of what to look for, um, is not is not there quite as much. And so I'm thinking it's really, really important to always maintain, for my part, the varieties that I'm aware of or have been responsible for, I always try to keep good stock of that. So I can always go back and refer to it. Um, you know, I just, you will get something in the mail today or tomorrow, Jarrow, with some of my authentic Cherokee purple chocolate in green and egg yolk oh, in it. Because I'm I want, so looking forward yeah, to that. Because cause I want you to experience this as well. And and so in any hobby, there's going to be people that are involved in it in different ways. There's going to be the, you know, the, the fruit growers, the seed savers. You know, I count myself as one of kind of the, the guardians of the genetic material and of the histories and of the information. And we're all, all of us are important. We all work together. And chefs who grow these and, you know, put them in restaurants. Anybody who has a hand in getting people's interest in these varieties elevated are all equally important to the process. Um, but it's just fun to be playing that game as maybe the uh, the variety policeman to some degree to make sure these things are what they were when they were sent to us years and years and years ago. It's kind of keeping the historia, historical integrity of these varieties, which I take pretty seriously, as, as you can gather. <laughs> I think that's wonderful, Craig, because I've been so disappointed these last couple of years, and I tried different seed sources, too, for the Cherokee Purple, thinking that I would, you know, that maybe somebody just had a bad batch or, um, yeah. or something like that, and the flavor just isn't there. The coloring's yeah, yeah. a little different. The flavoring, yeah. the flavor isn't there. And yeah. Cherokee Purple was always my favorite. And I had, I, you know, when I had to shrink my garden, I no longer really had um, space to separate the plants, and I was still working and caring for my aging parents, so I couldn't, um, I couldn't get the, the, the tomatoes bagged. Right. Um, and so I lost my favorite old strain of that, and it just broke my heart. And that strain had come from the late Chuck Wyatt, well, originally yep. from you, yep. And yep, Chuck yeah. got seeds from you, and um, and he grew them, and he shared them with me, and they were just yeah. wonderful. It's interesting how we're bounded by the seeds we share with each other and the stories we share, isn't it? I mean, it, it really shrinks the world a little bit. It, it puts people in contact that ordinarily wouldn't be in contact with each other. So pretty magical, this heirloom thing. 
I, I think it is too. And so I'm going to special. I'm going to make a, a practice when I can of bagging. You know, and yep. you said that you save seeds from the very first ones before. Um, before the bees get before busy. The, yep. Yeah, before the insects are busy in the garden. Yeah, uh, that's, and that's worked well. I've worked, I've got ninety-five plus percent purity doing it that way, and. Uh, you know, if if I had a point where I was the only person in the world with variety and it's, I had to keep it pure, I would definitely go to bagging. And uh, I've got enough old seed stock saved that I could go back and, if, you know, if it really hit the fan and I need to go back and ensure purity, I could go do some bagging. So I, I just kind of hedge my bets. Um, and it, the bees do really ignore my tomato flowers until we're getting up into the third or fourth truss. And then they... And then you can hear them hum. And you go out in a midsummer day and walk through the tomatoes, and uh, you could tune a guitar to their hum. It's, it's really loud. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, I think it's wonderful that you're doing that. Now, are your original pure stock, are they archived in, in nitrogen someplace? Well, I think that um, Seed Savers Exchange has a sample, and I would be willing to bet that the two companies that I originally sent it to um, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and Johnny Selected Seeds are, um, you know, taking really good care of them as the ethical, highly ethical, high-quality seed companies that they are. So I think I think we're in pretty good shape, and I would be willing to bet there's a sample of it out in the Svalsbad vault out in the, in you know, the cold north. Uh, I heard a really good uh, interview with Terry Fowler on the Diane Ream show a few weeks ago where he was talking about the seed vault. So we've got you know, the Earth has got a lot of its great germplasm safely socked away right now, which is always very comforting to those of us who are involved in heirlooms. That is good to know that, you know, children and grandchildren of the current generation may be yeah. able to have the same taste that we enjoy. Sure. Because it's just what- such a disappointment when it's not right. I know. Now, one one thing that has just come to me this year that I wanted to share that's kind of a late-breaking thought. So I've always, I grow my tomatoes, and then I dump the dirt at the end of the year in a pile. And, you know, I've, I've recommended that because there's a lot of diseases that attack tomatoes. But this year when I put in a late second crop, so I did two things. There were like 20 dwarfs that I never got fruit from. And so I went and... And maybe there was some early blight or septoria on the bottom foliage, but the tops of the tomatoes looked healthy. They clearly didn't have anything systemic like fusarium wilt, where the whole branch is turning yellow. So I nipped some tops and rooted them. And uh, I also went out and started some fresh seed from some crosses I did. So I've got 70 varieties out there. But I didn't feel like paying a lot of money for mix, and I... So what I did was I got grow bags that I had already used for tomatoes. The tomatoes had died in them, and I cut them off and pulled the roots out. But then I took the rooted cuttings and put them in and healed them in with some fresh potting mix. And they're growing out there, and they look great. So I'm now my, my thinking is coming around to if you grow tomatoes in containers, and the worst that they have is some lower fungal disease on the foliage that comes from splashing or blowing in, an early blight type of a thing, it may not be necessary to toss that dirt, but only to cover it with some fresh dirt and then mulch well, because my plants are 100% healthy out there. And uh, so this may be, instead of a blanket recommendation, is a watch this space and let's see how things do. 
But if I get good yields and these plants look healthy right up until frost, then I'm going to do a little bit of a modification on the toss that dirt into see what was going on with your tomatoes. And if, you know, if the tomatoes just died from an, a, a big lower foliage early blight problem that you lost control of, well, it may not be necessary to toss that dirt. You can maybe just plant a new plant on that, but amend it with some fresh potting mix. Maybe the, the top half will be fresh and then just feed and mow. So I'm hesitant to say this is what I'm going to do going forward, but I wanted to share that with people as a possible way to not have to say goodbye to all that expensive potting mix every year if you're sure that your plants don't have something worse, like a late blight or a fusarium wilt or things like that. So I'll That's keep you queued in, and I'll, I'll blog on that and let people know, you know, how that goes on. And if all goes well, I am going to have Halloween tomatoes. We may, ha- you know, we may have to switch our traditional pumpkin or pecan pie with a, a tomato crostini or something like that. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but I do want to caution people that it doesn't always work. And I think, Craig, like we were talking before about the weather, yeah. because yes. I did that this year because I have so many containers, and some of them are really, yeah. really big. And yeah. I just, by golly, you know, I'd already used a couple of bales of ProMix starting seeds sure. and and then using some to top off the old containers. Right. and. Uh-huh. It was my results were not very good when we got there. I thought everything was going to be hunky dory until we got yeah. to um, that wet spell. Yeah, and we well, that's when a good we point. went yeah. from cool and wet and then hot and wet, yeah. the the tomatoes just in the that weren't in fresh mix just yeah. tanked. So we so, may, what we may have to do is amend this to, and we'll look at this as it may be a a second cropping technique where you know that the weather ahead is only going to get slightly cooler with time. So let, And one of the reasons I love this show, Daryl, and I'm willing to go out on a limb and share some of these late-breaking items, is you and I are involved in experiments and research, and we're trying things, and we're sharing ideas, and it's, and it's not settled, which means people have to come back at some point and listen again when we, <laughs> when we, when we, when we, when we report on how we've done with this, um, you know, I love the idea that we're, 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 we're doing work in progress all the time and try to, try to help improve the tomato growing experience for everyone. So, so well done, and thank you for sharing that. That was very important to hear. Yeah, I, you know, there are so many things that have worked for me one year that I think, ah, I got this nailed. And then yeah. something else changes. And that's one of the reasons why I'm such a fanatic about keeping the rainfall records. And yes. you know, if even if we don't get a lot of rain, but we got several days in a in a row where it's drizzly and the plants stay wet, um, I write that down on my calendar so I can go back and reflect and see what's going on, what has gone on in the garden over the year, and see whether you know my assumptions are correct or not. And sometimes they are, and sometimes, well, you know what the first three letters of assumption are <laughs> and, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I just make a fool out of you. Anyway, we have to take a little break right now and we'll be right. Quick stakes. 
That's Q-U-I-K Steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and we're talking today with Craig LaHoulier, and we're talking tomatoes and about his experiments this year. And right before the break, we were talking about his experiment using um, old soil with just a little bit of clean stuff on top, and um, instead of changing out the potting mix all the time, because it's, you know, as you know, if you're a container gardener, it gets very, very expensive. So what are your new thoughts on that? Well, my first new thought is um, deciding to try this for a second, for my second planting felt a little sad for me because I've had my main yield. This is the gravy garden. This is, I've got 70 plants in there. You never know when frost is going to hit. So let's just try this out. And, you know, I'm doing something else that's a little bit interesting. In some of my bags, my wife makes kombucha. Kombuchas have this um, membrane that forms called a scoby that has different fungi and bacteria in it, and she she creates too many. So in some of my grow bags, I actually have a big piece of a scoby in there, and this would be totally serendipitous to see if the presence of a scoby in the roots does anything to help plants deal with certain diseases. So uh, I'm just doing it for the heck of it, and I don't expect to find huge amounts of data this year, but it is something I'm thinking of in terms of turning my my thoughts to battling disease and more natural ways to battle disease. Um, but your your comment on temperature and humidity and rainfall, uh, and this is why I love talking to you, Daryl, because, you know, the gardeners learn from each other, and you've given me an idea for 
my future blogs, maybe not this year so much because the weather's going to settle out and be pretty predictable for us going forward, but next year, capturing each time I blog what the conditions were the prior two weeks and seeing if I can draw a correlation between the weather conditions and what I'm seeing in terms of garden performance and just to help people see that. Um, so, you know, thanks for that idea. That's something I'm going to do that um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll call it uh, the Daryl data that I collect <laughs> next year or something like that. <laughs> oh, just call me an old extension person. And, you know, we used to have to you – know, people would call in and they would have problems or they would bring in a picture of their gardener. We'd actually go out and see what's going on if we couldn't, you know, pretty well diagnose it over the phone. And mm. so much of it was weather-related. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I just kind of got in the habit, and it has it has served me well. When I look back over, you know, over the year, and I'm trying to figure out, well, why did I have such a great garden, or why did I have such a rotten garden? But right. now I got a question for you that's totally sure. well. It's sort of weather related. Um, do you ever find that tomatoes have thicker skinned when they're really heat stress? Uh, you know. Our tomatoes are pretty heat-stressed in here, and I didn't notice an issue with skin. The biggest thing I noticed was an issue with more cracking, and I think it's, that was related to the fact that with all that heat, in order to prevent blossom end rot, I did a lot of watering. And when you do a lot of watering to tomatoes that are ripening, there's no way you're going to prevent that skin from popping. And so um, I actually went this year, Daryl, to more of a picking tomatoes when they were half-ripe, um, mm-hmm. By getting them off the plant half ripe and ripen them indoors, I actually found the flavors were equivalent because they ripen. You know, they ripen from they start ripening from the inside out, and so they're quite ripe inside, even when they're maybe just strongly blushing on the outside. But also, something that really uh, becomes a problem for everyone in the country are critter attacks. I don't have mm-hmm. the problem, but squirrels and birds really, really bother people, and I found that. Perhaps if you get that tomato off the plant half ripe, it won't have the aroma that draws the critter, meaning you're less likely to have a bite taken out, and you're less likely to have it cracking severely because, you know, you're not going to do those last few waterings um, when the tomato is formed and all of a sudden you water it and it pops. So thick skins, no so much, except my cherry tomatoes didn't taste all that good this year. And yep. so, so sun gold, which is like a champion, did not enjoy either where I planted it or the weather. And I've actually got, yeah, you too. I think it's the weather, Craig, because my sun gold, and my sun gold is the one I always plant right next to my path so I could, you know, when I go to the mailbox or go out to the garden, I can pick a few. And this year they were awful. I can't tell you any other way around it other than awful. And the seeds that I planted were the same seed packet that I had last year when they were wonderful. Yeah, yeah. The the upside to that, the really thick skins on them uh, this year, was that they didn't crack like sun golds do. You know, like normally you you pick a layer of sun golds, you have them in a container, and if you put another layer on top of them, they're going to split, or they'll split, you know, when you're picking them. That didn't happen this year. Yeah, so my interesting sun gold story is, you know, I plant all my seeds in mid-February, transplant in mid-March. They're Mm -hmm. kind of ready to leave home or be planted mid-April. And I always have a few trays that I don't know why I keep them alive, but the plants look terrible. So it came to 
mid to late July, and I still had my tray of straggly seedlings. I had two sun gold plants that were about a foot and a half tall, tiny little tomatoes on them, hardly any foliage left, waving in the breeze. And, you know, when I forget to water them, they'd wilt. So I thought, I'm going to just stick these two in a big <laughs> container in my driveway. Well, those two sun gold plants are now six feet tall. They each have about 20 suckers. They have about 200 little green fruit on them. And they are, they are going to give us some really good eating at a cooler time in the year where they may actually taste good. So, you know, we, we baby our plants. We think that they're, they're so vulnerable and so fragile when they're young, when actually, unless they're attacked by a disease, tomato seedlings are just, they're like weeds. And anybody who's grown one of the pimpinifoliums like Mexico midget or coyote knows that they are like weeds. The birds eat the fruit, they do their thing, and you get these things growing all over your yard or in your compost bins. So um, I was pretty shocked to find that two plants that were as abused as those were, roasted day after day for three months, are now going to provide more sun golds for our fall table. So just, you know, gardeners should just try things. Yes. <laughs> just yes. try it. Because, of course, all the books happens. say don't ever stress your tomato plants. That's exactly right. And, uh, but you try stuff. You know, when I, did, when I did my dense seeding technique, well, when you transplant plants, this will happen, or plants are crowded, that will happen. And even though I'm a scientist and I like to read about science, and I also like to sometimes feel like just an explorer that is discovering something for the first time and not completely disavow everything that came before, but just try things because sometimes people won't try things because they, it didn't seem logical to them, and that, lack of, that makes it into the book. And there's no real reason that something doesn't work except someone somewhere along the line thought it wouldn't work and that that becomes the mantra. Becomes the mantra. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in a garden being like a sandbox. You go out and you play and you try stuff and you see what happens and then you just wake up every morning and you jump out of bed and you go out and see what's going on. And it, it just brings a smile to your face daily. Um, even when things aren't going perfect, it still makes you smile. Well, I have a couple of very much abused tomato plants. Like you, I started a whole lot because, you know, I, uh-huh. I give some away and I, I grow some for a friend who has a CSA. And, you know, you end up with extras. I think he was going to cut back on tomatoes this year, and I think he ended up with, oh, it, it was well over, it, it was close to 100 varieties of tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants. And, no, not even any eggplants. And yeah. several hundred plants. And, you know, so there's, there's always some extra. He finally said, yeah. whoa, I, I shouldn't have done this. Because yeah, he's yeah. kind of like, I, he was like a kid in a candy store. Practically yeah. swallowed the catalogs whole this year. Anyway, um, but I have a couple of leftover that are have been sitting there out on the deck in partial sun. If if it doesn't rain, um, and I'm not out there, you know, they dry up. And then I yeah. remember that they're there, and I go and water them. Yeah. And I think I'm just going to go and get a pot of. I've got some fairly decent compost that I'm going to try yeah. putting them in and see what. Plant them deep, stick them in, water them, feed them, and you'll be amazed at what they do. And you, we can chat about that next time, next when we talk next next year or this, you know later yeah. in the year or whatever. Yeah. You know, we haven't hardly even gotten to some of the other subjects that you wanted to talk about, and we've got a little bit less than four minutes uh, left. 
That's fine. So, um, you, so the, you said let's say the biggest, the biggest, the biggest teaser for coming ahead. So I, I made some wild crosses this year. I'm, the, the Dwarf Tomato Project has been incredibly successful. We'll probably put another 10 out this year. That will take us up to 70. And I'm strongly considering stepping away from the leadership of it to where we're all anybody who's doing it is now just playing a little bit, maybe teasing some of the wild stuff around. So there's a tomato that's called variegated that has green foliage with, with white on it. It's a true variegated foliage tomato. And the tomatoes are unexceptional. They're like a golf ball. They're red. They taste kind of average. So then I thought, I want to start making the dwarf plants interesting looking. So I've taken the tomato with the carroty foliage. I've taken the variegated tomato. I've taken one that has yellowish foliage, one that has chartreuse foliage, and I've started using them in crosses. And out there, I have two dwarfs with green and white foliage. One has potato leaf. One has regular leaf. And they were crossed with a one-pound white dwarf. So if all goes well, we're going to have some really cool-looking, interesting, delicious dwarfs with wild foliage patterns coming. So uh, I'm start- the artistic part of my personality is going to start coming through in this dwarf project, I think, Daryl. Oh, well, as long as I taste good, you know? <laughs> That's exactly right, exactly right. Because, yeah. like, I've grown silvery fir tree for the novelty and yep. because my customers wanted something better, something different. Yeah. Um, but I found that, you know, the taste, the flavor just wasn't there for me. It's not a good tomato. Now, I and took that silvery fir tree and crossed it with a potato leaf, one-pound, delicious, purple-fruited dwarf. We will see. And if you want to um, try your hand at seeing what a few um, – what the possibilities are, I can I can send you a, a couple of plants to tuck in a pot next year. But I, I have I have plans for you next year. I'm gonna I'm gonna infiltrate your garden and get you growing some of my weird stuff. But we'll talk about that at another time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been having a lot of fun experimenting with dwarf tomatoes, and yeah, some yeah. are very good and very productive, and and some just aren't. But yes. you don't know that until you grow them. And, and like I said, this is probably, you know, I said the last couple of years have been really rainy. And we had a lot of late blight problems and, as well as the septoria and early blight. And this year, I thought it was going to be a great gardening year. And then it got mm-hmm. hot. And it stayed hot. And then yes. we had the week of really wet weather. And, you know, just it all went to pieces. So we'll see what yeah. happens next year. I, ha- I still am co- really impressed by Rosella Purple, though, because yeah. that little sucker doesn't the late yeah. blight. It lasts at, at late blight. Yeah. Well, you know what we did is I've, we've created a survey. My daughter created a survey for me, and now it's at the Victory site, Tatiana's site, and uh, Remy's sample seed, all of the people that are selling the dwarfs. And we're asking anybody who's growing them to go in and fill it out. So we're in the, we've now got, I think, 100 responses. I want to start collecting data for people growing these all over the country to start getting a handle on which ones do people like, where are they living, which ones do well where. Which, so this will then be the next piece in the puzzle. If people ask me, I'd like to grow a dwarf, which one do you recommend? I can start saying, well, here are the ones that tend to do well in your area of the country. Here are the ones that people seem to like the flavor of the best. So, And we're going to you know, have to talk about yeah. that. And I'm yes. going to have to get you back because we, <laughs> we are out of time. Um, I, I will put your website. It's com, and I will put yep. that up on our Facebook page. And please, guys, go get the book, Epic Tomatoes. 
We'll be right back next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.